Hey, this is Coach Freddie here, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and welcome to the I Have for Evolution, where we'll be discussing the benefits of growing and using industrial hemp for people, planet, and profit. Conversations about the history, legalization, farming, harvesting, processing, building, manufacturing, investing, and how industrial hemp can benefit people's lives, heal the planet, and how it can be used to make thousands of products and boost the economy and business. So, are you ready to join the iHemp revolution? Hey, this is Coach Freddie, and I'm here having a conversation with attorney Bob Hoban of Hoban Law Group in Denver, Colorado. So, Bob, welcome to the iHemp Revolution. Hi, Coach Freddie. How are you doing today? Good to be here. I'm just doing fantastic. I can't wait to get the uh, NOCO Hemp Expo. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you. It's going to be a great event. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot has happened uh, since our last uh, podcast, Bob, over a year ago. And can you give us a little update on Hoban Law Group and what's new there? Sure, yeah. No, I, I mean, we have, uh, we continue to grow and as, as I'm sure you're aware, we are the nation's first and, and only full service commercial full time national cannabis law firm, uh, meaning about 60% of our business is in the marijuana industry and 40% of our business is in the hemp industry. And, um, we see the hemp side of things coming up. So our, 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 footprint in the hemp world is just increasingly grown and we work with folks not only around the country but around the world uh since we've spoken last i i've been uh in china in a number of countries around latin america working with governments consulting with the the healthcare systems consulting with government officials about regulatory uh structures for hemp and uh and, and organizing farmers and, and some of our clients and, and helping some funding get put in place. So uh it's been an exciting time as we see this this global hemp economy really, really come to uh to fruition. Well that's great. You know, uh so you have been busy. We've we've certainly been busy and uh actually I leave tomorrow to go to Europe for uh some technology and some some seed uh acquisition deals. Um, and uh, we're going to be bringing some some technology and some some varieties to the U.S. that will really facilitate a true industrial hemp industry in the U.S., uh, which is an exciting thing. And um, the uh, the federal government certainly keeps us busy as well with some of their uh, their inconsistent, to say the least, uh, position statements on this topic. Uh, I think that uh, we won't necessarily get into the weeds on that right this moment, but uh, I think that there's there's a tremendous amount of confusion on the government side as well. Well, you know, what are some of those new laws? Well, they're not new laws, but they're changing the laws. And what are some of those new things uh, since you know in 2016 that has happened? Yeah. So so the so what we've seen most recently. So at the end of 2016 in December, um, the DEA came out with a new drug code classification for a, a something quote unquote called marijuana extract. Marijuana extract is defined as 
any extract from the cannabis plant which contains one or more cannabinoids. So we took exception to that rule because first and foremost, the cannabis plant is not an illegal thing. It's not a controlled substance, but rather marijuana, quote-unquote marijuana, spelled with an H, interestingly enough, is the controlled substance. And marijuana is not defined as the entire plant. In fact, marijuana is only limited to the flowers, the leaves, to viable seeds, um, to some portions of the stem, and to the resins on those parts of the plant. So to characterize the entire cannabis plant as a controlled substance is wrong. So that definition was wrong in that regard, but it was also wrong because cannabinoids are not illegal substances per se. Sure, a, a cannabinoid, if it comes from a marijuana plant, meaning a plant that has higher than 0.3% THC and is grown you know, outside of a Department of Agriculture permission or somewhere else in the world, if it has that high level of THC, and it comes from the flowers of that plant, then, then, it's, then it's an illegal substance. But as we saw with a Ninth Circuit decision from 2004 in what we call the HIA versus DEA case, Roman numeral II, um, cannabinoids are not illegal if they come from authorized parts of the plant or if they fall under what we've got in place today, the Farm Bill. So let me give you just a, a quick quick context on which and, and how this came up. So when, it, when the DEA gives something a four-digit classification, it does so because DEA registrants, people that handle, possess, research, prescribe these controlled substances, when they, when they want to order those substances or possess them, they refer to those substances based on the four-digit code. So that's really what this was intended to do, but by writing the definition so broadly that it would literally encompass the, the cold-pressed hemp seed oil that you'd find on the shelves of Whole Foods in just about every state in the country, when we saw that it was so broadly written and it didn't follow the actual law, we decided it was time to file a, a, a lawsuit. So while it seems like it might have been a benign scheduling or coding function, um, it actually has implications that are far beyond that. So should, for example, you know, Nature's Harvest, who produces that oil uh, in Whole Foods, mm -hmm. have to register as a DEA registrant? Well, of course not. But that's the implication of this law, not to mention the fact that cannabinoids, again, they're, they're not illegal substances so long as they're sourced properly. And that's what I think leads to some of the confusion with the DEA. So that was really the most significant thing that's happened in that regard, and we did file that lawsuit uh, in the middle of January, January 14th, and it uh, it, it remains pending, and uh, some briefing will begin in April uh, involving the DEA. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting how that, that is. So, um, you know, you're in quite a few states, and uh, Colorado seems to be in the lead compared to other states as far as industrial hemp is concerned. Um, what are some of the differences between the states and Colorado, and what you know? What problems do you see there? Yeah, so so uh, that's a great question. Um, you are correct. Colorado is is in the lead and has been in the lead. Colorado is about to enter its fourth industrial hemp cultivation season under its uh, hemp program, and um, of the twelve thousand 
roughly acres that were planted outside in the U.S. last year, Colorado was responsible for approximately 9,000 of those acres. So it's it's not just in the lead, it's substantially in the lead. And then about there was about 1.4 million indoor square feet planted. Colorado was responsible for 1.2 million of those indoor square feet. So Colorado really stands at the center of the hemp industry um, in the U.S. under the, the domestic production and the farm bill. Um, other states have rich histories, and they shouldn't be dismissed, Kentucky, for example. Uh, and then California just passed their recreational or adult-use marijuana program in November by, by a vote of the people, which included a, an industrial hemp component. Uh, and California is so vast and has such, you know, fertile farmland, uh, that we expect California, once it enacts its regulations, to really come prominently in the lead. But, but some of the differences really just revolve around the way that the state programs have evolved. So, for example, Colorado's program was passed when it passed Amendment 64 in 2012, and that was its adult use marijuana measure which included a hemp piece. And it was passed before the farm bill was introduced, but it has uh, created regulations and created a path where it complies and conforms to the tenets of the farm bill. And it has a Department of Agricultural Licensing and Registration System that only regulates farmers from the time you put the seed or the, the you know, the, the snipping of the, the variety in the ground till the time you harvest it. Other states are a little bit more hands-on. For example, Kentucky, when, when it began its industrial hemp program, it found itself in the midst of a lawsuit with the DEA. As a result of a settlement of that lawsuit, it enacted what's known as the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding System, where every operator in the state acted, in effect, as an extension of the State Department of Ag. Um, and that's a, a very flawed model that I, I don't believe is, uh, is, is sustainable in the long run, and I think we, there's legislation pending right now to effectively revise and eliminate that system in Kentucky. Tennessee followed suit with a similar system. So you basically have this MOU system on one hand, and you have the sort of Colorado Pure Department of Ag registration system on the other, and in between you've got you know states trying to figure it out. So that's really the broad strokes of what the differences are. Um, the other differences that follow suit is some states actively engage in licensing and permitting people that actually process and manufacture products from the hemp, whereas, like I said, in Colorado, some states simply say once it's, once it's harvested, uh, you, you certainly have to follow any other laws that might apply, but the Department of Ag no longer regulates them. So, so that's really, in a nutshell, some of the difference. Uh, and you know those those are found uh, found across the across the state. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I grew up in west in western Pennsylvania, and I know that they just passed the bill there. And the Department of Agriculture says that the farmers have to pay three thousand dollars for a permit, and they can only grow five acres. And so they're issuing those permits. And every state has these, uh, you know, that you have to buy it, you have to get a permit and everything. So what's that all about? How do you see that working out in the future? Well, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I grew up, I was born and raised in southern New Jersey, so Pennsylvania is near and dear to my heart, and we're working with a number of folks there. Um, but when it when it comes down to it, 
a lot of those overly restrictive um, situations, they arise because the government really doesn't have a lot of experience and they don't understand how to distinguish marijuana from industrial hemp. You and I both know that they're, they're used for different purposes and that if you truly have industrial hemp uh, varieties, that there's no danger of, of you know, people becoming intoxicated or, 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 I guess, you know, having that psychoactive high effect from a, from a hemp plant. But a lot of the governments don't know that. Let me give you an example. We went and consulted uh, in the fall with a prominent state in the south and their Department of Agriculture. These are really smart people. These are PhDs. And they spent the first two hours of our meeting talking about the differences between marijuana and hemp. So that's not a foregone conclusion that there's a distinction. So I think what you need to do is you need to sort of crack the door open a little bit so that the policymakers and people understand that there is a distinction between marijuana and hemp, even though it's the same species and genus, that the the hemp plant is used for a variety of other things, and that you can have a, a, a thousand, or, or I've been to a farm with 13,000 acres in, uh, in, 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 in Asia. If you have that much hemp, um, it's still not a danger to society because you could eat that entire 13,000 acres or burn it however you wanted to ingest it, and you would not get a psychoactive high effect because the plant is, doesn't have that THC content. So, so my point is, you know, long story long, if you will, is that these states they need to they need to come around to that. They need to they need to understand that. And by starting small and putting that barrier uh, of entry high, meaning that 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 high price tag on a permit, um, I think that gives them comfort and really brings in true industrial hemp people versus people that might want to you know game the system and and try to grow marijuana instead of hemp. But again, it's a, it's a huge education component and a learning curve, and you know a lot of that you bring to the table, and a lot of the folks that we all work with together in this industry, we're just trying to educate and empower both governments and, and people that want to act in this space because people really don't know. What's obvious to you and I, and, and, and maybe to a lot of people listening to this to this podcast, um, is not obvious to to a lot of government officials, the vast majority, in fact, and and a lot of people out there. Yeah, yeah, because I've been uh, talking to people, and they say, Hawaii, there's no permit required at all. And then... Correct. And then and Hawaii, the, Hawaii's on that other end of the spectrum where it's just, you know, just go cultivate. And, and that's, you know, that's ultimately where I see a lot of this going. When we're recognized, when industrial hemp is recognized as a true agricultural commodity, but it's still treated differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you have Vermont that you fill out a one page and pay twenty five bucks and take the same thing. And then, uh, and I was talking to somebody in Massachusetts that said that they, I think it's Massachusetts. You may correct me if I'm wrong, but the THC level uh, is up to one percent. That so, I, I'm not sure if it's Massachusetts, but but there are there are a couple states that have that policy either in okay. the works or in place. Um, and and yeah. again. You know, there's a question too about that. Is one percent dangerous? And and I would I would analogize 0.3 percent THC to it's about as much caffeine as you'll find in a deep, decaf cup of coffee. Uh, and you know, I, I think that even up to eight or ten percent THC really doesn't have a huge uh, impact, a psychoactive impact on the human body based on some of the studies I've read. 
but it's in the industrial hemp industry's interest to produce products and materials that, that and, and, and raw materials that contain far below 1%, um, because once you have the genetics dialed in, once you have the appropriate varieties and cultivars, the seeds, um, that that's not going to be a, a, a difficult thing to accomplish. The problem is now it's difficult to import um, seeds for commercial purposes because the federal law and the importation laws create quite a maze to get through to make that happen. Yeah, yeah. So I know you're all over the uh, country. You have offices all over the country, and, and you have one in, uh, I think, Puerto Rico, right? Because I'm, I'm in the Virgin Islands right now. And uh, so what's happening in Puerto Rico? In the yeah, so in Puerto Rico, Walter Marrero is, is a wonderful attorney that works with our law firm. Uh, he's got a history as a, as a judge and, and knows a lot of folks uh, around the island. Um, Puerto Rico is, is, is fairly wide open from an economic perspective for both marijuana and industrial hemp. Um, and uh, there's a number of folks with, with projects and plant, plant projects and developments. And there are some tax advantages to being in Puerto Rico, not to mention financial incentives. It really is sort of the gateway to the Caribbean. And it's as part of the U.S., it's also the gateway to, to South America. South America, we've seen such a huge and very rapid uh, increase in their interest as it relates to, you know, cannabinoid extracts and, and, and you know, CBD-type products for their, their people in their nationalized healthcare systems. So it really is a neat jump-off point for those types of products, and the island has a, has a lot of ground that uh, that is fertile and, and could be used for this purpose. Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting things happening in, in Puerto Rico. Um, we see, you know, just a... So to hammer home this point, Latin America, from Central down to South America, I mean, there's not a not a country that I can think of that has, isn't actively engaged in trying to figure out how to develop their own hemp program if they haven't done it already, and using cannabinoid extracts as a natural substance, as a supplement or a wellness product um, for the benefit of, of, of a variety of, of illnesses and ailments. So that's that's exciting, and, and Puerto Rico ties directly into that that network, if you will. Oh, that's great. Uh, when I come back down here next winter, then uh, I'm, I'm still helping to get their program going through the uh, university. Well, we, we work closely with Positive Nelson, yeah, Senator Nelson down there, and uh, the universities right. um, to help uh, clarify the, the regulatory side of the laws in place. And, and we believe that uh, there's a great opportunity for research and development of products. While while you might lack in, in actual, you know, vast quantities of farmland in the in the USVI. Uh, there's a lot of other opportunities um, for development of, of food and wellness products from this plant, and uh, excited to, to have you be a part of that as well. Yeah, yeah I'm going to be working with uh, Senator Nelson. I, I had a meeting with him uh, about a month ago, and we spent about 45 minutes on, so how can this be structured, how can we move this forward a little faster? That's that's exactly right, and and uh, the only problem is some some legislation in different states. Sort of going back to your point earlier as well about uh, the difference between the states. Some states and and, and likewise some territories, uh, or you know Puerto Rico is technically a commonwealth. You know when they look at these things, they, some take a full blown commercial perspective on what they should do with hemp. Some take a very very cautious and slow moving research and development purpose. 
and it's important to have a university involved, but universities are also charged with charting the, the economic development and the, the market of the industrial hemp industry and the, the, the federal uh, representatives that passed and sponsored the Farm Bill have written several letters to make it expressly known that this was intended to create a commercial industry so that we can study it, not do studies with the hope of creating a commercial industry in the future. And that's really, I think, uh, the fundamental difference in, in approaches. And, you know, the USVI has taken sort of the latter approach. They're, they're, they're slowly moving into the research. But if, you know, with the fact that this, this plant can't harm anybody, it won't add to society's woes, it can't, you know, truly get anybody high, for example, so the incentive is to create an industry and study the industry, not do studies and then create an industry. And that's that's really the the cart before the horse type thing. I think that a lot of uh, a lot of governments wrestle with. Yes, that's. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you you put it that way because uh, that, in my thinking, that's exactly what they should be doing. So uh, any way that, that we can do that, to speed that up, is going to be beneficial to any state or any territory. So, Bob, is there anything uh, that you wanted to add before we kind of wrap this up? No, I, I, I wanted to thank you for your time and, and thank you for what you do. I know that there's a there's a lot of folks that uh, that are that that ha- always have good things to say and great experiences when they meet you. And I think that you help carry that message of education and, and you know getting people up to speed on, on what they know need to know about this plan. And you know, not to dismiss. The, the sort of low-hanging fruit as it relates to this plant, you know, the soap and rope and the paper. But, you know, what, what, what we can do with this plant um, really has an opportunity to save the American economy from an agricultural perspective. And we can look at things that we know we can do with this plant right now, like bio bottles, plastic bottles that will not just rot in some landfill, that will actually biodegrade. Uh, graphenes and, 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 and conductive properties that that uh, can be used for supercapacitors, um, fuels, and other elements of this plant that can be used for industrial purposes. That's what the industrial hemp movement is all about. And in doing so, you're creating products and putting them into the mainstream that are eco-friendly, that are revenue creators, that are job creators, and truly, I believe sincerely, and I think you do as well, will revive a lot of these rural communities around the U.S. that haven't seen much activity since NAFTA. And, and that's, that's what this is all about. And, and that's really the, the message that, that I'd love to hammer home. Well, I'm right with you, Bob. So um, I want to thank you really for being a, a guest on the IHAT Revolution podcast with me today. And I'm looking forward to meeting with you uh, in a week or so in Colorado. Looking forward to it as well. Stop by the booth, and I'm sure we'll connect uh, multiple times over those couple of days. Uh, Thanks again. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. And make sure that you subscribe to the iHemp Revolution podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Give us a review and follow us on facebook.com forward slash iHempRevolution. Like us, and then tell your friends. 
Help us spread the word about how using industrial hemp can benefit people, heal the planet, and provide long-term profit. This is your host, Coach Freddie, inspiring people to do things that inspire them, and thanks for joining the iHemp Revolution.